and welcome back to you and I for the Kenai. We're back in the apartment today recording another recovery story. Uh, we're super excited to have Katie with us today. Katie, how's it going? Going good. Thanks for having me. Of course. We're glad to have you over. Um, mm-hmm. So we'll just kind of get rolling right into it here, I suppose. So actually, how long have you been in recovery? Let's start with that. A little over three years. Awesome. So a little over three years. So take us back to a little over three years and like a month before that ago and kind of tell us about either the time leading up, however far back you feel is necessary, leading up to recovery or getting into recovery and kind of what spurred your decision to get into recovery. Well, when I think about that time, I actually uh, struggle with some emotions because it was hard on me and hard on the people around me. Mm -hmm. Um, I will say though, that wasn't my first attempt at recovery and it was probably my 20th or 25th attempt, but I, I had, it's funny, every time you relapse, you kind of fall further each time. Um, so this was definitely the like lowest, rockiest bottom I'd ever hit to the point where I was actually shooting up in front of my mother instead of trying to hide that I did it. And, um, Mm. you cannot ever go back from that. Right. It's really, really hard. It's, um, it's hard to deal with guilt. It's hard Mm -hmm. to deal with your, um, own emotions all the time. And it's also hard to quit from that because you generally, like I did, have a pretty high tolerance Mm -hmm. at that point. So the thing that always really kept me from getting clean was withdrawal. And Mm -hmm. there was this like light at the end of the tunnel because we finally were going to have a detox facility here. Mm -hmm. And that was really exciting. And so I had gotten the ball rolling and was sort of waiting for a bed and in the interim, I'd been sent to um, to a doctor locally here that was going to prescribe me some medications to help me get through that point. Mm-hmm. Um, after uh, like 10 days, it became apparent that really the detox facility was no longer necessary. So under that doctor's care, I was able to really move forward into getting into treatment and go from there yeah yeah no that's (laughs) that's great there's a lot to unpack there only because it's all pretty powerful stuff especially Mm -hmm. the end because i think when it comes to stigma right and some of these other things you know we think about people and their active addiction is like oh they just they don't want help or they just don't care and i think like that frame of mind and it actually kind of is like sounds really actually pretty awful to me but the fact that you're emotional right now I think just goes to show that like it's not really like at that point it doesn't become much of a choice anymore you know what I mean you're not really like this person you're in your active addiction and it's like I get I always like to bring this up because it's like it's hard to get people who have no experience with it to understand just how tight that hold is and like to realize that like like you're saying like you don't go back from that like nobody wants Nobody wakes up in the morning and goes, oh, I'm going to use in front of my mom today, you know, or my family or my loved ones, or, you know, or I'm going to, or in anybody's case, you know, or I'm going to be a subpar parent today, you know what I mean? Or I'm going to do this today. 
it just speaks to the power that like addiction on a very, very biological level has on like your function and your brain and all the other science we've seen come out. And I think that's, I just always like to talk about that because I think that's super important when it comes to talking to a wider audience um, beyond the recovery community. I also like to try to get people to understand that, that we, for the most part, humans do what your brain tells you to do. Like your right. brain is mm. supposed to say, you're hungry, eat, you're thirsty, drink, mm-hmm. um, you're in danger, run. Right. Uh, when your brain is saying, do drugs or die, <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, you yeah. can't say, well, I'm going to yell in my brain today and ignore <laughs> all the other physical um, symptoms that go along with it, which are horrible. Mm-hmm. And just to end, like, suffering that makes you want to die, you right. use. And that's, not, like, that's the only choice unless there's help that works for you. Right. And mm-hmm. you're given tools. Yeah. So with that, I mean, I know you said that you tried quite a few times before that. How did you keep from, I guess, like, giving up on yourself? Because I know after a while, personally in my life, when I'm trying to, you know, fight with some vice or, or whatever's going on, if I keep doing that after a while, it feels it feels impossible because you've been through it so many times. So what kept you, you know, getting back after it and trying to get out? Like, what motivated you? Um, two things. This is going to sound really horrible. Um, one. We do that often, so it's pretty bad. Uh, one, the big one was that I couldn't commit suicide because I wouldn't do that to people. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I also... Um, one of the, my motivating factors for staying in recovery and like being a better person in general was my dog, which also I know to people is going to sound really terrible, but uh, he was yeah, my, whatever it takes, he was my guy. He was yeah. my rock, and mm-hmm. and he was getting old, and um, I knew that I was headed for hard times with that, just because dogs we outlive them is mm-hmm. the nature of things. But um, I knew that I. I may not survive if I lost him while I was in, a, in active addiction. So mm-hmm. that was my... Yeah. And that, that kind of leads into... It's kind of the ultimate rock and hard place. You know, if you feel like in order to not kill yourself, you have to do drugs. And that's... I, I can't imagine how painful that is to feel so trapped. You know, it, where were you... I, I know you try to get recovery, but where did you... Where'd you go from that mindset of it's either this or that? What kind of opened, I guess, opened your perspective to see that there were other options? So, honestly, uh, someone else. (laughs) Uh, That's usually what it takes, right? So, I, as I said, I was Mm -hmm. seeing this like horizon of being able to get into a detox facility and then mm-hmm. then hopefully getting into long-term treatment from there. Mm-hmm. Um, what I ended up with was a medical provider like hounding me and mm-hmm. saying, we can help you. We can help you. We can help you. Mm-hmm. And finally I was like, okay, well maybe we can help you. <laughs> right. uh, yeah. And it's, it's hard because I, as I said, I've, I've been in, recovery for probably four times where it was longer than just a couple days. Mm-hmm. And what always happened was I went back out because I wasn't managing pain. 
Mm. Um, it's it's what led me to addiction in the first Learn. place. And Are so, you talking physical pain or yes, emotional physical pain? Physical pain. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I have some just birth defects, basically, that cause pain. Mm-hmm. I've had them since I was a kid. I've had pain since I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, as I got older, just needed more and struggled with doctors and ended up on the street eventually because pills weren't helping anymore. They were too mm-hmm. expensive or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so what the deal was that I learned was that I couldn't just cold turkey withdraw. Like, mm-hmm. I just couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually it's dangerous. <laughs> it's so dangerous. I'd say there's few people who can. Yeah. I'd say that is there. Like, it's it's literally rare. like you can die. Pretty sure. I'm like 99% yeah. sure, actually. If you... I know I know people who have died in prison. Yeah. Relapsing. Yeah, yeah. You know, or withdrawing. So, I mean, it's, it it's pretty realistic more, fear. Yeah, it happens more than we think, too, I would imagine. But, probably. sorry, continue. <laughs> no, yeah. truly. Yeah. It probably does happen more than we think. Um, the, the issue there was that uh, there is this additional stigma attached by the recovery community, which I don't think a lot of people know about, that mm-hmm. for those who do recover without medically assisted treatment or without right. um, without Vivitrol or without Suboxone or without mm-hmm. an abuse or whatever. Right. Um, play whatever you want. The yeah. ones that do have an issue with those that use medically assisted treatment. Mm-hmm. So uh, trying to fit into the parameters of a 12-step program here while also being on MAT was really hard because either you had to lie and just not ever get the full experience of, like, <laughs> opening right. up at a 12-step program. Yeah, that has to create some sort of dichotomy, too. Like, yes. I have to lie to get better, but I also want to, like, open up and get better. Yeah, dude, that's, like, that's like one of those moral dilemmas. It's, like, the train scenario. It does. Either yeah. you aren't really uh, fully trusting these people, or they're not fully trusting you, depending right. on how much you uh, divulge. And... Early on, I learned that because early on, I tried methadone, mm-hmm. and, and I was actually fairly successful in that, considering I didn't actually go into any treatment programs, which mm-hmm. was the key in the end. Right. But um, How long ago did you start methadone? So, the first time, I was 20, right. and I was on it for six years. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, I, and I think, and it's it's easy to, like, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, so it's easy to look back and be like, man, there's so many problems that around methadone or there's so many problems around all these other MATs you know what I mean the suboxone films and all like but I think like at the, a lot of, for the most part at the time like kind of was like the best of what was available like if there had been like other things available that were better people would have been using other things that were better like we're using now you know what I mean like an MIT and an MIT does carry this stigma but I mean I, I Eric brings this up a lot too when he was with us like f- from a research perspective it just works like I, I, it's like that's like the bottom line man is like regardless of like subjective opinion objectively like it, they see better outcomes for the most part or just as good if not better outcomes so like and kind of like we're talking about like if it works like why not, why not? you know what I mean to yeah. like just to fit some box of like what recovery yeah. should look like to somebody else like I don't know it seems pretty ex- exclusive to me but it it does, and honestly, 12-step programs only work for about 10% of people who are in recovery, so really, all humans don't, nothing Nothing is one-size-fits-all, so mm-hmm. no one should mm-hmm. ever have to fit into one box for recovery. No one should ever right. uh, think that 
that rule is going to apply for recovery if it doesn't apply for anything else. Right. But I, if more people are getting into recovery, more people are attaining long-term success, like why is it, why is it off limits? Why should it ever be right. off limits? Yeah. Um, the problem with methadone for me was that there wasn't, a, the doctor prescribing it wasn't also saying, are you getting treatment? Well, because they couldn't. Right. Um, mm. They were prescribing it for pain. They weren't allowed to prescribe it for substance use disorder outside of a methadone clinic. Right. Hmm. Like when you come every day. Yeah. So I wasn't getting that additional, like, you need to be in treatment. You need to be working a program. You need to, you know, let me check your your pills every week or meet with counselor and show me your progress. Because if that's that watchful eye had been there, I mm-hmm. probably would have been able to achieve recovery then. But. <clears throat> so it's kind of, it's at that point, it was kind of like slapping a band-aid on the outside, but not fixing what was, what was going on underneath. It kind of worked for the yeah. time, but there were deeper things that you could sort out through, again, through recovery, but not, not necessarily in that kind of environment. Yeah, I would say that all recovery programs really have, have one big common denominator and that's working on trauma right mm. yeah and so that is something that no matter what it is and and how it, another person might see it mm-hmm. it's still trauma everyone has it mm-hmm. it's like, uh, every honestly probably every person over the age of 16 has it but yeah, um, definitely it's pretty every, universal yeah definitely every addict has it so um uh, i'm really curious uh yeah, go ahead. Uh, while I think of this question, jeez, Confusosaurus Rex over there, bro. <laughs> just kidding. Now you're making me forget my question. No, I'm, just kidding. I'm just kidding. I know mine. I got it right here in the hip. Um, <laughs> no, I got it. I got it. Yeah. So I know you said you dealt with a, a lot of pain, and that was kind of the sticking point. I that's something that I haven't heard before as far as the recovery stories we've done. So it makes me really curious on how did how did they approach that in finding ways to deal with physical pain or I mean uh, and I know emotional pain is kind of similar but I'm sure there's some there's still some differences you know on what does that look like for you in in dealing with that so uh just to be clear there's definitely some mental health issues mm-hmm. for me as well but mm-hmm. um what I believe led me into the the active use that I was in was physical pain mm-hmm um, what that looked like for me is I needed to still be on a pain management program, whether, mm-hmm. uh, no matter how that was going to look. So the first year was mostly just making sure that I was, um, staying out of withdrawal, staying out of active use. And mm-hmm. in, um, I ended up just going for outpatient and that was pretty successful, but I also had a lot of other balls in the air. Um, I was doing a program, which was like the, the, um, pilot program for Ionia's wellness and peer recovery support. And I was also in some behavioral health treatment, which included counseling and group sessions and psychiatric care. So that was about the first year, and towards the end of the first year, I got 
into a physical therapist, which honestly, like, I, that was a huge step for me. Um, I was in physical therapy for uh, almost two years and the amount of pain that, that actually subsided just from getting my body moving more and strengthening and flexibility was really Mm-hmm. And, awesome. it, and it meant that Love I you. didn't, yeah, thank you. It meant <laughs> I didn't need as much. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm actually still working on, I, I do need a couple surgeries, which hopefully should eliminate some additional pain, but really mm-hmm. I'm not going to be pain free ever. Right. But um, that. I would say uh, 60% improvement is so much better than, than mm-hmm. the 100%. Uh, yeah. Things, so. That's and a that's, big chunk, dude. That kind of goes to show you don't, you just never know what people are going through. Yeah. I mean, like, the person that, that you're talking to might be in, in pain constantly, and you just don't mm-hmm. know. And so... Yeah, and I think, like, from an outside perspective, you know, and I think I, I don't have any, like, first-hand experience with chronic pain, so it's kind of hard for me to say this, too, but... Mm-hmm from what I've read about chronic pain is that it's for someone like me, it's incredibly hard to understand because like for us, pain is something that's fairly fleeting. You know what I mean? Like at most, even with like something like an ACL surgery, which is like one of the most devastating, like injuries, like single time injuries you can do to your body. That's located in one area. That's nine months of your life usually. And that's it. Yeah. Then you're done. It's not every day. For 25, 30, 45, 50 years. You know what I mean? So yeah. I think, like, in the way that affects your mood, like you're talking about, and the way that affects your general disposition towards the world, like, honestly, man, I just I just had a guy in my apartment, dude, walk out and he sounds pissed. He's like, ah, he's like screaming. So I'm like looking around, like, wondering how, like, what's going on, like, if we can help him. And all the next thing you hear is my back. You know, it's just like the way, like, your, the way your physical body feels, like, ultimately affects the way you. You react emotionally to a lot of things, yeah. and the way you kind of just address the world in general. Mm-hmm. I think, like, especially if your pains like limits your mobility, that's like oh, yeah. a little bit depressing. I, I, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's definitely more on the plate to deal with. Than appropriate that is to that say, but no, it's it's accurate. Mm-hmm. In fact, um, when I first started off before the the physical therapy, I had a severe limp. So everywhere you go, people are like. What is this young person? Uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> what is this young person doing, like walking like that? And they're always just, you know, they stare and they're like, "What is wrong with this person?" And yeah, I'm not exactly always fun to be around, but mm-hmm. um, I do cry. Yeah. <laughs> Don't be it's a grumpy, it's a grumpy thing. Um, right. Yeah, chronic pain is hard. It's it's a misunderstood thing, and mm-hmm. honestly, I blame doctors for just prescribing narcotics without even right. really understanding that they had such a heavy uh, consequence on my life, on, on the lives of lots of people. Yeah. Because while there's definitely a place for narcotics in the world, like, no one should ever be on them for more than, like, a month at most. Right. And I know that doctors are are getting there now, but they didn't before, and and you never know if the person you're prescribing them to is just gonna have 
something with their brain or something with their body or genetics or whatever it is yeah. that makes us addicts. Um, right. That was like a monumental thing in my own experience with recovery is like when I simplified, like, especially with when it comes to like in terms of alcohol, like simplified, like that idea of like, cause you know, it's always like, uh, and especially the way I grew up, I guess, but I think for a lot of people around here, cause they probably grew up in a similar manner. It's like, I can't do this. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's something when you, and it's, it gets into like a little more, I get, I put it into a little weirder of a box, right? Like your mind versus like your brain, you know? So like, it's because of my mind and because of me outside of my physical body that I can't control this. You know what I mean? Like I'm the problem. But then like you, like you said, like that biological drive, you know what I mean? Like, it kind of separates that a little bit into something a little more manageable when you think, Oh, it's not necessarily like I can't handle this. It's like my body, the physical, <laughs> the physical me, like, has a biological reaction to this that like shuts this valve off. You know what I mean? It's like when you look at it in like that disease or like biological format, I don't know, something psychologically was just like clicked. You're like, Oh, like it's just so much more simple. It's like someone who's like, I don't know, born with another like birth defect, not a birth defect. Maybe maybe like diabetes. Yeah. You just gotta have insulin if you, you know, yeah, you just have to do some certain things. You You just take care of it, you know? Right. Or at least it was for me, and I'm sure for others, to like, like, oh, okay, this is doable. Like, however I have to do it, this is doable, you know? I, I don't know. That was huge uh, I think the, the unknown is frequently overwhelming. Right. And when you, when it requires a lot of energy for that first step, for making, you know, that first momentum change mm-hmm. in your life, I think the less complicated it is, and the more you break it down, the easier it is. Because, I mean, I don't think anyone likes to be overwhelmed. I mean, it's just not, it's not a good feeling. (laughs) Yeah. So I've I've heard people relate addiction to diabetes frequently. And to me, it's, that's a hard one because I think that people see diabetes as a social disorder also. And so it's like, well, diabetes is the fault of people who are just too overweight and, or if they don't eat right, or they didn't do anything correctly because even though there's two types I was, one, I was about to say I was like is, wait a second one of them <laughs> is genetic. faultless um, yeah yeah most people generally who who aren't in a medical field mm-hmm. uh, generally just think of the one so okay I, I always just like to say like I didn't know that my brain wasn't going to be able to handle it like right. there was Much no sense. indication yeah. I I um you know, I, I came from a really good family. I came from a really good background. Like, my life was, there was nothing identifiable, usually, in movies and, and on TV and in books. It's like, oh, this person lost their kids and their family and their home, and, and so they turned to drugs and alcohol. And it's just like, there was no thing, no pivotal moment in my life that made me turn to drugs. Mm-hmm. It was, I was prescribed drugs. Right. And all of a sudden, I really loved them. <laughs> yeah, and I yeah, yeah. and I wanted to keep doing them. And, then, and that and could have been did. a dormant trait from like four generations ago <laughs> that like nobody and even your immediate family had an idea of like, oh, if this happens to so and so, or if they give so and so this, you know, it's in our family. You know, it might happen. Like it's totally off the radar. It is, mm-hmm. and and one of the things you always ask yourself 
when you're really suffering an addiction is like, why me? Why is it like this person can be prescribed some medication for an injury and they're like, I don't even want to take them. I don't like how they feel. Mm -hmm. And I take one and I'm like, oh my gosh, I need more and more and more and more and more. Why me? Um, Why me? And how is it that uh, I get out of the shadow of my addiction? I guess Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. one of the really big pieces that's hard to gratify when you get Mm -hmm. into recovery. Yeah. That's the right word. Who knows? Makes sense you to can. me. I got it. We can cut that, though, if you yeah. want. That's totally fine. Just, just look it up first. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we'll just start keeping a th- thesaurus around. Just see oh, these. man. Yeah. Hold them up on whiteboard. Cards <laughs> <laughs> or something. Make us all sound really smart. <laughs> we'll deceive everyone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We only get to use words that are more than four syllables now, so. <laughs> oh, boy. Good luck. No, I'm just kidding. So at what point in your recovery, when you, this last time when you went from meeting with your doctor, right, and going through that process, the more uh, medical side process, getting into recovery, uh, how long did you, was your recovery focus? Actually, I got a better question. Because a lot of these, I know, I know, this is terrible, but (laughs) I thought of this better. Because obviously the goal of MAT, right, is to kind of help you cut those cravings Mm -hmm. so you don't go out and keep using and and die really for the most part was being was using mat or was being in an mat program make it easier to address some of like the more emotional things um like when you started getting into treatment in a way yes because i wasn't constantly dealing with that like it's a it's hard to explain it's like um basically like if your bones are trying to get out of your body mm-hmm. like that's the only way I know how to explain it <laughs> right. is like you just feel unstable inside like um and cravings are really hard and it is one of the things that you work on in recovery is um triggers and cravings and and it didn't mean that I didn't have um desires to go back out mm-hmm. but I wasn't like um, dealing with that, like, physical need mm-hmm. to do it. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, so so MET was actually incredibly helpful in, in helping me work through what was actually triggering me, what I was actually feeling, where the real trauma was, where the real um, emotional upsets were. Mm-hmm. Because when you're in withdrawal, even even for the first like six months after, um, you're kind of a mess. And even on even on medically assisted treatment, I was still not like producing enough serotonin and norepinephrine. So I did still need some psychiatric medication for that, right. and probably always will, mm-hmm. from what it sounds like. But um, just yeah, being able to work through emotions without without that nagging thing in the back of your head just that's just like this is too hard. Go get better. Then deal right. with it. Cause, right, and that's yeah. and that's an interesting interesting point to bring up is like again going back to the medical example I used earlier. Earlier you were kinda of like putting the band aid on the wound and not treating the thing. 
uh, not treating the, the actual disease, but then later on, if you don't have that Band-Aid and you're trying to treat a disease and someone's bleeding and, you know, that's pretty distracting <laughs> when you're trying to figure yeah. out w what exactly is going on. But then, you're yeah, so you, you kind of getting both into one cohesive program, I think, is, is pretty good because you got trauma to deal with it. I mean, I'm sure everyone has in their life. Mm -hmm. You have uh, maybe you got to learn some coping mechanisms because... I mean, that's a lot of people just right. I mean, everyone needs to learn coping mechanisms, honestly. Uh, good coping mechanisms. Yes. I think exactly. we all learn coping mechanisms. That's, that's, that's true. Some aren't very good. That's very true. Yeah. But in the sense of medically assisted treatment to kind of let you focus on the bigger issues that you can kind of work through without being bombarded by that kind of like um, over overstimulation of your senses, in a sense. Yeah, uh, it it's eliminates the need to go back out in your brain. And like we were talking about that earlier, your brain is telling you what to do all the time. So mm -hmm. your brain is always saying, well, like, this is too hard. This doesn't feel good. Mm -hmm. um, you're nauseous because you have the flu, so go get some drugs. So, right. or you, you know, you stub your toe, get some drugs. Mm -hmm. um, you're sad, go get some drugs. <laughs> right. Basically, yeah. um, they over over the course of years, like dope becomes your coping me mechanism for everything. And so, yeah, mm -hmm. trying to figure out what how you, how you can actually approach these things um, in a healthy manner and effectively, and what doesn't work because there's lots of things that don't work that work for other people or or new things come up, which I'm actually always finding, and so I'm constantly in counseling because I have new things that, new right. issues that arise, like getting a job for the first time in 10 years, and like, how do I cope with managing my time, and how do right. I not freak out on people, because mm -hmm. usually you're all alone when you're an addict, and when you're using, and mm -hmm. you don't really have to be friends with people. Right. So... It's like part of the general consensus that we're all going to be pretty awful to each other. As long as we stay high, we're chill. It's fine. This yeah. true. I was really friendly on meth, always. Mm -hmm. um, I don't... None of the other drugs really did that, but meth didn't. <laughs> right. Was that also something that you kind of had to work through? That, like, uh, I mean, I'm sure, you know, having to stay away from your, your current friend group was difficult, even though you said you're kind of, kind of alone in that situation. But I guess, in, in my mind, if I had something that when I had it, made everyone like me more be very hard from a social perspective for and me to, to put that away yeah exactly yeah. it's just like and then kind of also maybe i don't know if this is anything that you went through but like maybe even having some kind of identity crisis of like who am i am i even worth hanging around when i'm not this kind of person and that's not even me i don't know is that something that you the answer felt? is no first of all no, okay. I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, like, never. No, so, uh, as far as, as uh, losing, you do lose the social group. That, oh, yeah. Um, I'm not necessarily a really social person, but humans just sort of need it. And it right. just for um, even just venting your own problems, like, mm -hmm. you can't do that to a dog, I learned. Uh, I, I've tried. But, Rabbit either. <laughs> <laughs> you don't listen too good <laughs> <laughs> but really what I lost more with stopping using is like the energy that I got from it and mm. like my 
gosh, like being able to just do laundry and clean up my room and everything became super overwhelming. And, and I still am struggling trying to find that, that balance of like, um, feeling good enough to do all the things that I need to do without burning myself out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Honestly, it is, it's probably the biggest loss that I felt and still feel. Is yeah. that I think a lot of that comes with time, too, because, I mean, like, your reward systems have been so hijacked for so long that, like, they're kind of fried. I mean, I think it just takes, like, I mean, I have a a good friend of mine who's in recovery, and he's, like, and he kind of has the same idea, you know. He's like, dude, it's, it's, I've been not, not using anything for, I think it was, like, 15 months, dude, and he was, like, and I still, like, don't know, like, how to feel joy, you know, or, like, or how to really, like, how to get excited about things or how to, like, I don't, like, I do it, you know, like, I try at least, but, like, and I think that's just because, like, the only thing that's been rewarding for your brain and for your body for the last 10, 15, 20 years is this one thing. So I think like over time as like you start to kind of rebuild those like those circuits, those reward circuits in your brain, stuff make it easier. But it is a challenge. Dude. It's super hard. You know, I have like that conversation with that friend like fairly often. Like we kind of like make jokes about it, but I think that actually kind of makes it easier for us, you know, yeah. to talk about it. But I think, and that's another thing I think like is hard for people that are outside of recovery or have experienced anything with active addiction before is like, oh, you have all, like, your life's so much better now. Like, why, like, why aren't you happy all the time? Like, why aren't you, like, grateful all the time? And, you're, like, while we're on this, like, physiological, like, concept, because, like, physiologically, man, like, my body doesn't know how to, like, reward itself anymore. Like, yeah. I think a lot, yeah, I think over time you kind of just rebuild those pathways. But it's hard. Yes. Or it takes time. Sorry. No, no, no. I was just going to say, that's where that, you know, the, the psychiatric meds that I'm on, really come into play because they're really solely for those chemicals that my brain doesn't really produce on its own anymore mm-hmm. because the drugs were helping it produce it and now right. it's just like I you broke me yeah. so <laughs> yeah um, and that could have been something that you needed before I it's mean very possible that, yeah. that's something yeah. that people already struggle with who aren't in addiction and so maybe you have this one thing going on and then you you have you know the <clears throat> your drug of choice is filling that need, but it was always a need. Maybe like yeah. uh, it's it's hard to say. Definitely. But I mean, I'm I'm sure it doesn't it doesn't help. You know, after feeling that reward, like you were saying, Aaron, with the one kind of reward. But uh, yeah, that's a that's a tough one. That's just tough to to deal with motivation and. As far as an identity crisis, mm-hmm. it did take a pretty decent amount of time to go from like addiction is your your whole life which honestly this is this is my side note sorry but it's one of the things that i think the outside world doesn't understand and doesn't really have patience for is that in order to for most people to really recover they need a good couple of years of just recovery like Mm -hmm. don't try to throw in work and life and all these other things like don't try to get your kids back right now don't Try to um, get a job and work full time and and do all this other stuff. Don't try to go to school. I mean, it's one thing if you, I understand the need for survival, but I 
also know that that <laughs> we should be supporting these people for a good year at least, right. and hopefully a couple of years, yeah. to ensure that that they can work solely on recovery work as best mm-hmm. as possible. It's, and I think that's where, like the reconciliation between like these two like schools of thought between like you know the, the AANA and like the traditional 12, 12 <laughs> steps kind of like because they're not all like spe- that specific you know yeah. but like that kind of like general thought and like this other like more like oh this disease is how we handle it kind of thought is that like that f- they kind of come together when they say to, for like that first year like this is what you're doing you know like you're not no relationships. You're not going to work like whatever, however you're doing it. I think that's like a general consensus of like that first year, like it takes that amount of time to like we said, kind of re rebuild these pathways that have been so hijacked for so long. Not throwing other stressors into the mix and and being able to, because really recovery is kind of a full-time gig at first, but ideally then you should be able to sort of slow down on the recovery once you get into long-term recovery, mm-hmm. slow down on the recovery and start to put other pieces of your life back together. And what I found was that all of a sudden I was volunteering and working and had all this other stuff happening. And I was like, I don't even, I never asked for any of it. I don't even know when <laughs> that occurred, but I'm, mm-hmm. I'm busy and I'm working and it's, huh. it's weird. And it just happened. It didn't, um, I didn't have to stress about it but I the only reason it happened is because I had someone there I had people there supporting me throughout mm-hmm. that first year and a half um, until I could start to really be a part of the world again and I think that's a good sign to say that it, it kind of just happened uh, realizing that when it works out or when a recovery program is most effective I feel is when you can gradually introduce these new things like volunteering and working and it's not inherently overwhelming because you've kind of built up the coping mechanisms. You've built up ways to deal with life that it doesn't, it's not just like, ah, how am I going to deal with this? It's just like, Oh wow, I'm, I'm doing a lot now. And you know, it just kind of sneaks up on you. Now, don't get me wrong. I do still go ah, <laughs> all the time, but, um, but I do somehow manage and, and mm-hmm. it's, funny because I never really thought that I was ready uh, for those things, but other people did, and so they kind of, like, <laughs> pushed me along into these these roles, and now I'm, now I'm volunteering pretty uh, intensely and working a lot, and yeah. That's yeah. great. It's pretty fun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's pretty fun. That's not probably not something you would have said five, ten years ago. It's pretty fun. Yeah. Right. Well, okay, I do foster dogs, which that is fun. Right. It's a lot of work, but it is fun. <laughs> That's the only one. <laughs> That's the only one. Yeah, so, I mean, when you do start to be yourself, because, I mean, we've talked about some of these difficulties that you're, I mean, that have been a part of your recovery, right, and have barely been a part of life this whole time, and I think they are for most people. And so for the people in recovery that are maybe – you know, at that year, year and a half point that are starting to build some of these um, more healthy coping mechanisms or strategies, what are some things you use that kind of either help you take a step back or maybe like reinvest or whatever that looks like when you feel like you're getting a little overwhelmed? Um, that's, that is a good question. I think that 
working on healthy boundaries has been big for me. Um, I guess what I have learned and had to really work on is like what I will let people get out of me, take from me, I guess. Mm -hmm. That doesn't, that sounds, sounds like everyone who I run into is trying to use me, but um, (laughs) it's, it's more like what, when I reach that point where I'm like, ah, this is too stressful. Like I have to learn, had to learn. Um, and it's still hard. I had to learn to say no. That's really a hard thing to do. It's not an it doesn't come easy. And then, um, I don't like to disappoint people and I don't like confrontation at all, but, Mm -hmm. um, in the long run, it's always been the right thing to do is just learning. I know. Right. <laughs> and also, I still I still check in with a counselor weekly, and I do skill building, and it's um, it's something that doesn't you know I haven't just gotten better just because I started working on stuff. So it's been a long term long term need, mm-hmm. I guess, is behavioral health stuff. Right. And that is a big way that I learned those skills. Mm-hmm. That's something that I, I hear over and over again is boundaries. Yeah. Boundaries yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and coping mechanisms. I think there's a, a shortage of them in, you know, in current life, just general. Like whether mm-hmm. you're in addiction or not, um, learning how to deal with stuff that makes you upset or that makes you feel bad in a healthy way isn't really inherent. I mean, we think it is because you see all these adults and you're like, oh, they got it figured out. You know, as a kid, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. 25, they know what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> Wrong. But, however, <laughs> um, learning to set those boundaries and learning to have those mechanisms in place, I think we could all kind of use more of those, but what was your journey like? How did you, how did you go from being kind of yes all the time to putting your foot down and saying no? Um, my gosh, it was not hard, or it was not easy, sorry. Mm-hmm. It, um, oh, there was a lot of yelling. <laughs> I mean, um, no one, right. like, just a lot of yelling. Yeah. Um, but really, what I found was that if I didn't express my boundaries, like, it just kept happening, like, people were asking more of me and more of me and more of me, and, and, you know, let's say someone's trying to get a hold of you at 1 a.m. because they're up and I'm answering the next, you know, next time they get a hold of me, it's at 1 a.m. again. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I just, learning how to turn your phone off is mm-hmm. weird, but it's something that I was like, well, I'm getting to the point where I don't want to do it anymore. So if I really want to keep working or keep volunteering or anything like I've definitely been on the verge of getting burnout a few times and right. I just had to learn like I'm either going to burn out or I need to set these boundaries and kind of limit yourself yeah, it's tough yeah. it's hard I'm still working on it <laughs> again I'm still working on it and I haven't gotten there fully but um I also have a pretty good support system that is willing to be there and, and listen to me and <laughs> help me um, vent and also offer possibly some good advice. Right. I, yeah. And you find that support group in, in recovery or was that always no, been kind um, of around? So that is mostly family, but I, the 
I have encountered some people who have been really supportive that were just like that I just randomly encountered, I guess. Mm-hmm. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's truth, uh, as we talked about earlier with the stigma of MIT and, and recovery groups. I haven't gotten a lot of recovery support, but I also didn't go seeking it as readily. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, um, I am, however, working on, on, uh, well, I got my facilitator training for smart recovery and I'm hoping that a smart recovery group can happen in the area because that is really medically assisted treatment friendly and, okay. Yeah. What is smart recovery? I don't know if I've heard about that. Um, so it's, it's just, it's, it's REBT based, which is rational emotive behavioral therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, so smart recovery is cognitive therapy based and you work through these tools. They have a four point program that really you start with, start with pre like pre planning, mm-hmm. early stages, mid stages, maintenance stages and then you're done and it's it's a beautiful thing like mm-hmm. you can always come back for um things that pop up and it really covers all behavioral uh addictive behaviors sorry right. okay um, yeah. yeah so is that going to be specifically for rehabilitation or is that like how would people who are looking to get into a smart program maybe when it comes up how would they find find out more about it or so at the time we will be it so when I say we it's uh, uh through Kenai Peninsula Reentry Coalition, mm-hmm. um we would be advertising for it and have flyers, but you could definitely get in touch uh, through the reentry coalition okay. if you wanted to. Um and that again it recovers all addictive behaviors, so like sex addiction, drug addiction, alcohol, um the whole works, eating. Right. <laughs> which okay. is, I'm currently struggling with, so I kind of need it myself. Um, it's, it's one of the things those replacement behaviors are right. uh, actually become their own addictions after a while. Mm-hmm. I don't think mm-hmm. people really think about that when they... That's, <laughs> that's got to sneak up on you. Yeah, 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 You're just yeah. like, I just got rid of this one, and now here, here yeah. we are. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it does. Oh, especially but, during yeah. these times. Yeah. You know, the, all, everyone's extra stressed out, so... Yeah. It's good to be aware of these resources that are available. Yeah, I really. Um, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just gonna say we we're, uh, I, we haven't really settled on a location yet, mm-hmm. um, but definitely we would be observing social distancing protocols and, and everything. So mm-hmm. right. I, I love I love how this recovery story in particular how you're really catering to the fact that individuals need kind of individual programs. It's not really a one-size-fits-all sometimes. Maybe you got to go around recovery in a way that's different from what's considered uh, traditional recovery. But if you find something that works for you, or if you can get resources and help from people who can help you find out what works for you, then that can really help in, in sticking with it. No, so It can, and just understanding that... that so... The key piece of successful recovery, anyone will tell you this, mm-hmm. is support. And right. finding support can often be really hard to do, but 
what I found was support in places that I didn't expect. So um, it, it can happen anywhere and just getting out there and, and working in a program that seems right for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So where did you, so when you got into treatment, did you do outpatient with your MA, with your MAT as well? I did. Uh, so where did you do outpatient at? Aquila. At Aquila? Yeah. Oh, cool. We just um, did an interview with Veronica from, from ASAP, I guess. So not oh, Aquila, but yeah. they're associated. Yeah. That's what I'll remind me of. Anyway, so what was that program like? I don't know if we've ever interviewed anyone that's went to the Aquila program. So it was, <laughs> uh, I really liked it, actually. <laughs> I will say that initially, um, so there was Charlie Simmons, which I'm sure everybody Right, we have an interview. Recovery community knows. We've interviewed Charlie. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He um, he is an incredibly easygoing guy, and he uh, incorporates a lot of mindfulness tools into recovery, which is something that I was desperately looking for. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) But then there was this old timer, as the the actual like group counselor. Right. Uh, and we did uh, four days a week of two and a half hour sessions and the group counselor was and I kind of batted heads initially mm-hmm. but ultimately I'm grateful very grateful that he was hard on me because it made me really work the program and really identify the pieces that I was trying to hide mm-hmm. so we we went through an MRT program. For those that don't know, it's moral recognition therapy, which is a word they made up, I guess. <laughs> but, um, I'm serious. <laughs> recognition is a word they made up. But okay. it's, um, at the time, I was like, this is this old school thing. Again, you just, you kind of go into re- uh, treatment with a different attitude than you come out of it. Yeah. <laughs> But, Probably designed that way, I would imagine. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> but, it, you know, I was like, yeah, what is this whole thing? I'm not going to learn anything from this. And it's just a booklet. But ultimately, it was, um, I, I think MRT is a good way to go. I don't really know if other outpatient therapies do it, but it, it was it was really helpful. Um, the, the group setting was obviously helpful. And, and what I saw was that, there were people who were struggling, and if as long as they kept coming back, the counselors and the program was really open arms to them, and, and that just that alone makes you feel better about being there and feel um, like that's a safe place. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it actually was a little bit shortened because Aquila closed, but um, they reopened and closed again, but... There's one, there's one, they're in Anchorage now. Okay. I think they're in Juneau, too, in case anyone's listening from south, southeast, but west, whatever way that was. Bottom right, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you get into Aquila, I guess? Um, <laughs> I sort of, I well, okay, so my doctor's office helped me, helped by getting the applications and, like, saying these are the places and... Um, I had actually started somewhere else, Mm -hmm. but that didn't work out very well. So I went to Aquila. Um, I 
I basically sort of harped on them, um, and, and I thankfully had Medicaid. I've been on Medicaid for many, many years, so that was incredibly helpful. Mm-hmm. And the assessment came, I want to say, about a month in, and then I was able to get in a few weeks later. In the, in the thing, it was asking what additional resources I might suggest. Yeah. Definitely. Um, oh, yeah. So, one of the things that I believe got me through uh, losing my dog, which was really hard, but um, mm-hmm. I think the only reason that I didn't go back to the street after that was I'd done the grief recovery workshop. And, grief recovery workshop? Yeah. Okay. So, that was. I don't really know who put it on, but um, Gail Kennedy did it. Mm-hmm. So, it might have been the hospital or maybe. But um, that was incredibly helpful. Like I found a really uh, big group of supportive people in that. They were all really struggling with the same things, and a few of them were also struggling with um, addiction and recovery as well. So working through that—that's trauma work—and mm-hmm. like working through that trauma and grief work was um, incredibly, incredibly helpful in, mm-hmm. in being where I am now. Yeah. That's an interesting point to make, too. Uh, if you can get these skills before something terrible happens, you know, when you, you knew you knew that in advance that this kind of thing was going to end up happening, and you were able to get the resources, sounds like beforehand, yeah. right? Yeah. And so if you can look ahead and see that kind of thing and get those resources, I think it can help a lot of people uh, who get stuck in the spur of the moment and kind of, you know, when, when grieving happens, it kind of takes over. So yeah. I think that's a good resource. It was helpful also in dealing with other traumas like um, violent stuff and things from the past also. So it's kind of like, you know, yeah, double. Is there something that you wish you had heard sooner? Yeah. Um, I guess if I'd known that I could have gotten help at the place that I did without mm-hmm. having to go. If I'd known that I could have gotten the medication that I did uh, without getting into detox, I absolutely would have done that. So, yeah, just knowing, uh, sometimes knowing that certain places even help with SUD is, is part of the problem. Right. So if you're somebody who is looking for the right kind of resource, maybe you don't feel like you can find it. Uh, We do have, there, there are people out there who can help direct you to those resources, uh, like ASAP, right? That was one of the, or was that? ASAP, you have to have a misdemeanor, I believe. You have to get it through the court. Oh, okay. The court directs you to ASAP. Oh, yeah. Um, I think the Aqu- I think Aquila and Anchorage, actually, they might have to go through the court too now. I don't know, but you could always look that up, or not like right now. Or where did where did you where did you hear that there were additional resources? So, uh, the addiction specialist at QCHS actually called me. Um, mm-hmm. Because they had gotten a referral from a doctor I saw after I'd been uh, fired from a pain contract. I was like doctor hopping, trying to get pills again. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'd gotten a referral and had called me and said, we can help you. Because I honestly thought that that I I could only get that service in a detox facility. Oh, okay. okay. Gotcha. Yeah, so if you're listening now and you're wanting to get into recovery, you feel like that's something that's for you, 
um, but want to explore all your options, whether it's a traditional or non-traditional. I don't even know if those are good words, but regardless, um, you know, it's there's resources in our community that are here to help you, whether it be your traditional 12-step programs or whether it be something more MAT or something more something different that you think would fit you. Um, you can always call uh, just the general lines at PCHS to get more information. You can call the general lines at CPH to get more information. Um, looking in just even just online, Googling your your meetings, you know, finding the place to start, whether that be just a anywhere AA or NA meeting and then talking to some people and building the support networks we're talking about um, and then kind of pointing you in a direction that you feel would work for you. Those options are out there. Um, thank you very much for listening. This was you and I for the keynote.